So most of us know the incredible story of the miraculous deliverance of the children of Israel from 430 years of Egyptian slavery. The, the Exodus happened about 1,500 years before Christ to kind of locate this in time. And we're aware that the children of Israel miraculously crossed the Red Sea and traveled to Mount Sinai where God gave the law to Moses. And they stayed there around Mount Sinai, this, this um, huge contingent of uh, the children of Israel. Uh, Moses said there were 600,000 men. So there were a lot of folks who camped around Mount Sinai for uh, about a year. And then they began moving toward the wilderness, toward what God had destined for them, the promised land. This should have only taken a few months, but as you are surely aware, it ended up taking 40 years. And the reason it took 40 years is fairly simple. God's people made him angry because they were ungrateful, and their ingratitude led to a lack of faith and an inability to seize the promises that God had destined for them as a people. Put bluntly, the vast majority of the Israelites in this story, 1,500 years before Christ, were ingrates. Now that sounds like a politically incorrect term, doesn't it? But an ingrate is simply an ungrateful person. And as you will see, God is not happy when his children are ingrates. So, so here's the story as they're just leaving Sinai and getting ready for what should have been a, a brief trip to the promised land. Numbers 11 verse 1 tells us, now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The rabble with them began to crave other food, other crew food as opposed to the manna, a bread that God was supernaturally providing with them for them with the dewfall every morning. They began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. Remember, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic, the Mediterranean diet. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this supernatural bread God provides for us every morning, this manna. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. If this is how you're going to treat me, says Moses, the great man of God, please go ahead and kill me. And so God, his anger aroused, said to Moses, I want you to tell the people to get ready for tomorrow because I'm going to get them what they think that they want. And uh, not only are they going to eat meat, but they're going to eat it for uh, more than a whole month until God said, it's crude, this isn't typically the kind of thing I preach about, but nonetheless, he said, until it comes out of their nostrils. 
And they loathe it because they have rejected the Lord. Why had they rejected the Lord? They had rejected the Lord because they weren't pleased with the provision he made and they wanted something else. And so then the text picks up, now a wind went out from the Lord, Numbers eleven thirty one, and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two, two cubits or three feet deep all around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers or 60 to 70 bushels apiece. And while the text goes on to say, but I'll just tell you, the meat was still between their teeth. A plague broke out. And many of them became terribly sick and some even died. And they created a grave there that has a kind of a well-known name. It's a, a, they called this place Kabroth Hatava, which means graves of lust because they're these people who suffered this plague because they got what they thought they wanted were buried. Now, one uh, well-known Bible commentator writes, this is probably hyperbolic language, some of the way the story is told, very common in the writings of the ancient Near East that there's a lot of hyperbole used. Uh, certainly all of it is true, but there are certain points that are emphasized. And I like the way this commentator writes, this is probably hyperbolic language, but it effectively communicates the truth that those who reject the perfect purposes of God find the alternatives nauseous and undesirable. This much is clear. The complaining of the people angered God and God disciplined them. And then later the situation gets worse because the complaining of the people ended up causing God to not allow this generation of ingrates to enter the promised land. Now, why would God get so angry? Well, the reason is because he knew that ingratitude would keep his children from being able to enjoy the life he had dreamed for them. Scripture tells us that the father disciplines those he loves. His discipline was not a sign of his dislike for his people. His discipline was a sign that he wanted them to learn what was necessary in order for them to grow up and to, to seize all the possibilities of their future. Proverbs tells us, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. God disciplines his people because he wanted them to move from being ungrateful to grateful so they then could exercise the faith and take the action necessary to enter what he had promised them. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the positive potential of gratitude. Gratitude is powerful. We discussed how that, that the science and research of the last 15 or 20 years in particular, constantly around this subject, confirms what scripture has always taught about the importance of being grateful. 
I referenced, and I will briefly again, the work of, of Dr. David, of Dr. Robert Emmons, who wrote the book called Thank You, which is one of our recommended readings for this trimester here at TLCC. And uh, this, this uh, professor of psychology at the University of Southern California does a, 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 a gra groundbreaking work coalescing the science around the discipline of gratitude, and here's part of what he writes. We discovered scientific proof that when people regularly engage in the systematic cultivation of gratitude, they experience a variety of measurable benefits, psychological, physical, and interpersonal. Grateful people experience higher levels of positive emotions, such as joy, enthusiasm, love, happiness, and optimism, and the practice of gratitude as a discipline protects a person from the destructive impulses of envy, resentment, greed, and bitterness. We have discovered, Emmons writes, that a person who experiences gratitude is able to cope more effectively with everyday stress, may show increased resilience in the face of trauma-induced stress, and may recover more quickly from illness and benefit from greater physical health. Our research has led us to conclude that experiencing gratitude leads to increased feelings of connectedness, improved relationships, and even altruism. We have also found, he writes in this secular book, that when people experience gratitude, they feel more loving, more forgiving, and closer to God. Now, I recite that again to mention the power of gratitude, but then to turn around and say that gratitude is so powerful that the reverse is true as well. Ingratitude is powerful. Ingratitude has the negative potential to keep us from the blessings that God wants so much to give us now and in our futures. So with that in mind, let me just draw a contrast between the power of grateful versus ingrateful. The power of grateful versus ingrateful. I'm gonna make three observations about this. And um, more than likely, I'll just get to the first two today and then um, get pick up the third observation next Sunday. So here's the first observation on the power. I want us to understand how powerful gratitude is, but I also want us to understand how powerful being ingrateful, which I thought was a word that I made up, but then I discovered actually Shakespeare used the word ingrateful as well. I wouldn't have had the parentheses around F-U-L if I would have known that before I wrote this. But anyway, that's a side note you could care less. Grateful people please God and give life to others. Ingrates make God angry and kill the people around them. I'm not being literal about the word kill, hence, if you'll notice the nuance of my PowerPoint presentation, the quotation marks, all right? You can smile if you want to every once in a while and don't take me too seriously. I'm not taking myself too seriously, all right? So let me read this observation again. Grateful people please God and give life to others. Ingrates make God angry. Now, rarely are you gonna hear me stand up here and talk about God being angry. But to stress the power of ingratitude, I need to say what scripture actually teaches us. 
Ingratitude arouses God's anger and it kills the people around us. Numbers 11 again, Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us, to, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. And then he goes on and says, if this is how you're gonna treat me, please just go ahead and kill me. Martin Luther, the great reformer, believed that ingratitude is a profound spiritual failure. And not only that, Martin Luther taught that ingratitude is the root of all sin. Now I have to say, I haven't studied this to the extent where I could certify that statement, but I think it's powerful that Martin Luther believed that ingratitude was actually the root of all sin. And in saying this, he expressed not only the, a theological view, but the common sentiment of ancient wisdom from both a Christian and non-Christian, or even pre-Christian perspective. You go all the way back to the great Greek philosophers, hundreds of years before Christ, you will find that ingratitude was considered to be a powerful vice that, that caused destruction in the whole of a person's life. The Apostle Paul picks up on this when he wrote to the Romans in the first century and talked about how that people, though they knew God, neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Consider this. He says these people, though they knew God, they didn't glorify him and not only that, they didn't give thanks to him and it's really then a, a segue to their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is a powerful indictment against ingratitude to know there's a God and not to give thanks to God leads to foolish hearts and dark spiritual vision. Hundreds of years later, Shakespeare, in line with so many other writers, just kind of obsessed about the subject of ingratitude. Shakespeare wrote, I hate ingratitude more in a man than lying, vainness, babbling, drunkenness, or any taint of vice whose strong corruption inhabits our frail blood. And in his plays, he, he presents ingratitude frequently. His plays are hotbeds of ingratitude. In his text, Shakespeare use, uses the terms ingrate, ingrateful, and ingratitude some 40 times, often modified by the adjectives monstrous, hideous, or grotesque. He saw an ungrateful person as monstrous and grotesque. David Hume, the great philosopher, wrote, of all the crimes that human creatures are capable of committing, the most horrid and unnatural is ingratitude, especially when it is committed against parents and appears in the most flagrant instances of wounds and death. The great philosopher, theologian Immanuel Kant wrote, ingratitude is the essence of vileness. Now I stress this negative point 
because I think it's necessary to emphasize the gravity of ingratitude. Being grateful is not just impolite. It is a vice. It is destructive. Ingratitude is so serious. Again, it arouses God's anger. And to make a larger point and to try to save an ingrate from self-destruction, he will sometimes let us get burned as the camp of the ungrateful Israelites did. And he will sometimes allow us to dig our own graves based on our own craving. This is because in the big picture, he wants us to get to our promised land. And because he loves us, in his anger at our destructive ways, he will allow us sometimes even to get what we think we want so that we can learn that really we should be grateful with what God has already given us. Further, not only does ingratitude affect God and then his relationship with us in this way, but it sucks the life out of the people around us. You end up with somebody as great as Moses saying, I give up. If these people are gonna continue to complain about their hardships this way, then just kill me. Now this is not how you want your friends to feel, or your spouse, or your parents, or your spiritual leaders. But this is what happens when you're in the presence of constant Ingratitude, it, it's a, it sucks the life out of the people around us. Uh, I have uh, frequently over the years referenced the writings of Anne Lamott. I, I, I enjoy her writing style a lot. I don't always agree with her conclusions, but she's so descriptive in her stories. And in a book I read a couple of months ago called Almost Everything, she tells the story of her Aunt Janet who was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer and given a year at most to live. And Lamont writes that she did all the chemo and radiation she could take and then uh, all the alternative modalities too where the basic teaching was that love is the only truth and that truth heals. Lamont writes, she and I are almost alone and she and I almost alone in our big family shared a belief that we were spiritual beings having human experiences, not vice versa, and that spirit, love, and truth were actual reality superseding the vagaries of our physical realities. She writes, she, her, her Aunt Jane, missed Janet missed a holiday after a diagnosis, and then the next Christmas, she showed up at my Uncle Millard's house. We were all gobbling down dip, gravlax, frankly, I don't know what that is, and bourbon, knowing, enjoying the banter, insults, one-upmanship, and a rudite, highbrow humor that defined our family. And uh, Lamont has written previously to telling this story about how that when their family gets together, everyone, as a show of their own intelligence and kind of in the style of their family, engages in a lot of cutting humor. And, uh, and sometimes to the point of, of almost seeing how much their humor can hurt one another. And 
She said, this is going on, and Aunt Janet's sitting there with this, this cancer diagnosis and doing everything she can to live, and she said that as they, this is going on around the table that, that her Aunt Janet grew quiet. Then she asked for our collective attention. She said that things had changed for her now, that she was fighting for her life. Her healing was dependent on loving environments and feedback, on continually giving and receiving love and positivity and avoiding stress as much as possible. Therefore, she needed us to make a decision as a family whether we wanted to keep up our hilarious but hostile ribbing and self-doubt disguised as humor, which she had always loved and enjoyed and participated in, or whether we wanted her to join us for family gatherings, in which case we needed to change to a better station with more love, listening, and gentler humor. Lamont writes, we picked her. The fact is, Ingratitude and the expression of negative emotions sucks the life out of people. And the reality is, whether a cancer diagnosis hangs over our head or not, none of us can really afford to have the life sucked out of us, can we? We need to be surrounded by life-giving people who speak life-giving words, and we need to be a person who surrounds others with the same. The fact is there are certain negative emotions, and it seems that ingratitude may be the serious of them, most serious of them all, that just kill people instead of give life to people. See, gratefulness pleases God and gives life to people. And I think each of us need to make a decision. And frankly, I have recommitted to this in recent weeks and months in my life. We need to be the people who make sure that we are expressing ourselves in ways that creates an environment that's pleasing to God and life-giving to other people. Ingratitude has powerful, negative impact in our lives, in the lives of others. Some of us are like the woman who walked into a department store. Unbeknownst to her, she was the one millionth customer. She was greeted with great fanfare. A band played, all the employees were there to greet her, confetti was shot, and the owner stopped her and made a presentation, gave her a, gave her a huge gift certificate, and then he put the microphone in her mouth and said, and where were you headed in our, in our fine department store today? She said, well, I was headed to customer service to go to the complaints desk. And I think the reality is we don't really mean it to be this way, but here God's wanting to throw a party for us and cause all kind of great things to happen in our life, and we just, we just keep going to the complaints department. And it's hard for God to bring into our lives the beautiful things he wants to bring into our lives when we're that guy or gal. Here's my... Thank you. Here's my second observation. It's the grateful people see the best in every circumstance and ingrates see the worst in everything. Grateful people see the best in every circumstance, ingrates see the worst in everything. So let's go back to our text here, Numbers 11, verse 4, where we're told the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, 
If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves and it tasted like something made with olive oil. And there's another text that describes manna a little bit in Exodus 16:31, which tells us the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Note, if you will, it's described in one place as tasting as like something made with olive oil. And another place, it's, it's tasting like wafers made with honey. I mean, the whole manna thing is amazing. So God, as his people are walking through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, provided fresh bread every morning with the dew. And it could be prepared in a variety of ways. It could be prepared to taste like bread and olive oil appetizer in a fine Italian restaurant. Or a sweet cake for dessert. It, it seems, by the way, that this wasn't the only food that they had either. There's not time to get into this, but it appears that they actually took flocks and herds out of Egypt. I think the issue is not that they didn't have any meat. They didn't have as much as they want, and it wasn't being prepared the way that they liked it. The fact is that in the manna, as a, even as a supplementary food, there, 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 there was all kinds of possibility. I mean, I just, I, I, I like the fact that someone looking for a reason to like this could surely have found it. Do you want to make it taste sweet? Do you want it to make it taste Mediterranean dietish? How do you, I mean, look at this. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people around and gathering and ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in pot or made it into loaves and it could taste like something made with olive oil. It could taste like a sweet cake made for dessert. It reminds me of Bubba in Forrest Gump talking about Shrimp, you may not know the scripture here, but you know about Bubba and Forrest Grump. Shrimp is the fruit of the sea, he said. You can barbecue it, boil it, broil it, bake it, saute it. There's a shrimp kebab, shrimp creole, shrimp gumbo, pan fried, deep fried, stir fried. There's pineapple shrimp, lemon shrimp, coconut shrimp, pamper shrimp, uh, shrimp soup, shrimp stew, shrimp salad, shrimp and potatoes, shrimp burger, shrimp sandwich. And then he says, that's about it. Well, when you look at manna, you look at manna, you could have said, we're sick of eating this every day, but if you look close enough, well, you could, you could have all kinds of manna. See, one person looked at manna and saw something bland and unattractive. It's supernatural provision God is providing every day. And you can look at it and say, I'm sick of this miracle every morning. And in fact, I don't even want it. I want to go back to Egypt so that I can have fish prepared the way I like it. And by the way, it was free. Or you can look at it and say, look at all the possibility here. Look at, all the, look at what God did and all the things that we can do with this thing that God gave us. The fact is, an ingrate can find something wrong with everything. It's not enough. It's not spicy enough. It's not leaky enough. It's not garlicky enough. It's not clean enough. It's not big enough. It's never, ever enough. And I'll have to tell you, you know, sometimes, sometimes people will say, 
uh, to me uh, kindly. They'll say that they appreciate, they, they, they feel when I preach that I'm authentic. Well, the reason that I'm authentic when I preach is I'm usually the one who needs it more than, than anybody in the room. I don't know how to not be authentic when, when I'm preaching things that convict me. And you're saying, well, we didn't know, pastor, that you were a human being. Well, I think you did. But not only was this all this possibility that people were missing, but, but, but the Israelites, like so many of us, didn't seem to understand that the manna was provision that God was making for a season. This, this wasn't the end game. If they didn't particularly prefer this miracle God provided every morning, that's okay because if they just would have been grateful for it and kept moving towards a land flowing with milk and honey, they would in fact end up with a land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, that's where God was taking them. But while they were in the wilderness, God provides what they needed to get from here to there. But some of these people acted like that what they had was all they would ever have. And in complaining on what they had, they missed up on what they could have had. but it was only meant for a season. But they got stuck in that season for 40 years because they simply could not be grateful. It's, you know, somebody could make it more complex than that, but that's really at the root of what happened. It's like God says, you don't like this? Well, I only was gonna give it to you for a few months, but now <laughs> you're gonna have 40 years. You're gonna grind it, you're gonna bake it, you're gonna make it, you're gonna patty cake it, you're gonna do all this stuff. You know, the definition of the word prosper or prosperity or to be prosperous in both Old and New Testament, perhaps I should say it like this. The, the definition of, of, of the, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament which is transferred in some variety of prosper or the Greek word in the New Testament which is translated in some variety of prosper means Definitionally, it means the provision that is made on the way. It has to do with the journey. To, to be prosperous in God's economy isn't the end game. To be prosperous in God's economy is to recognize the provision that God is making all along the way to our destiny. It's not a certain amount. It's not a certain thing. It's not a certain this. It is, it is the provision that God makes on a daily basis. And sometimes, you know, it may not be what we're aiming for, and it's not the end game. It's just what God is doing for us to get us there. But Guys, I can't stress this enough. I know I'm repeating myself now. If we don't, and I speak this to myself, I speak this to all of us, if we are not grateful for what we have at this moment, we're not gonna be able to get the thing that God's really promised into our lives. So part of what we have to do then is we have to learn to, as I taught two weeks ago, I kind of, start wrapping this up with, with this, this last thought this morning. Emmons, in his book that I've referenced called Thank You, he talks about how the gratitude is rooted in two things, acknowledgement and recognition. And when he, acknowledgement is, I think, obvious on its face. Recognition, I think he does something very interesting in this because he, he breaks the word down into its, into its parts to say that to recognize something is to recognize something. 
To recognize something is to rethink something. And I taught about this at some length two weeks ago. If you're interested, you can go back online and, and see me going to this at some length because there are interesting uh, biblical texts that apply to this, the idea of reckoning ourselves, the way God reckons us. But anyway, part of recognition is recognizing, rethinking a thing. And sometimes in, in, in order for us to learn to be content in a present circumstance, we have to recognize. We have to make ourselves think about this in a way that, that is truthful. This is part of what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Philippians, again, as we taught at some length about two weeks ago, and said, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In other words, if you can find anything good here, think about that. And thinking is an act of the will. We force ourselves to look at the manna or to look at whatever else is going on in our lives and to rethink it in a way or reframe it, if you please, in a way where we see it truthfully. We see it in proper perspective. And Paul then went on and said, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Part of learning the secret of being content in any circumstance is to think about things in their best possible light, or for us to think about things in their, in, in, in their God light, if you please, the bigger picture of what God's doing in our lives and in the world and who he is and his character and his love for us and his plans for us. We have to rethink things in that way. Silly, perhaps little story. So uh, last uh, Saturday, a week ago yesterday, Sharon and I uh, uh, flew from Thessaloniki, Greece to Athens, Greece, we had spent um, the better part of, uh, I don't know, five or six days, uh, first of all, at a conference with lots of people and then with a smaller group of other pastors and leaders doing some of the touring I mentioned a moment ago. And we left that group, went back to Athens to see the sights in Athens, amazing uh, things, Paul and Morris Hill and the Acropolis and just such a blessing to be there. And, um, and we were frankly happy when we got on the plane. As much as we had enjoyed being with folks all week, we were happy to be together, just the two of us. After 36 years, we still like being together, uh, just the two of us. I'm thankful for that. I, I think you feel that way? Okay, she said most of the time. <laughs> think about whatever good thing you can think about, all right? Anyway, we, we, so we had a nice evening planned in Athens. Uh, 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 you know, I'm, I'm imagining a, a romantic dinner. You know, uh, Athens is a very romantic place. And, and uh, but what, what we didn't know is that, um, well, what we did know, we knew that the marathon was taking place on Sunday. When I say the marathon, I mean, this is where the marathon started, right? You, you, you remember Greek history enough to know. This is where the marathon is happening in Athens, Greece on Sunday. 
But, and, and everybody knew that and was prepared for that, that Sunday would be chaotic. Hence, we're getting in Saturday afternoon to have a quiet evening. Uh, but, but what no one seemed to know, uh, Athens isn't the most organized place in the world, actually, was that there was a 10K pre-marathon taking place on Saturday night where thousands of people were running and thousands of people were spectating. And most importantly, they shut down every road you could imagine and our taxi driver who was driving us from the airport was only able to get us a mile and a half from our hotel where we'd planned this nice evening. And uh, we, we, we're, we're, we're thrust out of this taxi cab with, with uh, you know, eight or nine days worth of with clothes in, in probably suitcases that were much too large and forced to somehow find our way through street closings and, and 10K runners and thousands of people and, and dragging these suitcases on cobblestone streets. And um, it was hot and, and I perspire easily as you've observed over the years. And in fact, it's really hot in here right now, isn't it? But anyway, uh, I was hot and one of the wheels was broken on one of the suitcases and our evening was messed up and, and I was so grouchy. Uh, yes, I was, and, and I was complaining about my hardships. Now, it's silly. I know it's silly. This is leeks, onions, and garlic silliness, right? You're in Athens, Greece. You're blessed, but the bottom, we're lost. We're so lost. The stupid, in fact, I'm getting angry thinking about it right now. The, the phone wouldn't figure out where in the world we're supposed to go, and no one, I just like people were sending us places just to make fun of the stupid Americans with too much luggage, and we're dragging these things, and we've probably walked about five miles, and we look at the, finally the dumb phone shows us where we're supposed to go, and we're still about a mile and a half away from this hotel, and, and then we're, we're walking through this crowd, and I feel something hit my back, all over my back, and I looked up, and there was a, there, I saw a balcony, and I assumed that someone had thrown something over the balcony, and you know, probably water or beer or something. But then I then I hear a guy behind me, a nice-looking young kid in, in 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 really excellent English, say, "Sir, sir, you have something on you." And he 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 touches my back, and he comes around, and there's brown stuff all over his hand. And he said, he said, "This smells like well." I didn't think through this story very well, uh, but he, he, his English was good, and I understood that he was saying it smelled like something extremely unpleasant, and he wanted me to smell it. I didn't smell it. I have enough sense to not do that, but he's got this stuff, and, and then, then probably only because I was so irritated, I just kept walking, thank God. And this guy chases me down the road, pulls Kleenexes out of his pocket, and he starts rubbing my back. And, and Sharon says, oh, it's getting worse. And he wants Sharon to start rubbing this stuff off my back. And all of a sudden, it hits me and Sharon at the same time. Athens is famous for its creative thievery, for the pickpockets. And um, we looked at each other and said, let's just keep walking and holding on to our suitcases. And sure enough, when we finally got to our hotel about 10 hours later, 
and we talk to the people at the hotel desk, we learn that this is a classic setup for people who want to steal your passports and your money and everything you have in your bags. All you have to do is let go of your suitcase just for a moment and it's over. Now I'm going to tell you when I'm standing in the hotel and I've told the hotel manager my opinion of them not letting us know the 10 K has happened and all this stuff. I stood there and had a moment of recognition. Do you understand? And the recognition was we almost got robbed, as they told us in the hotel, of everything we have in the middle of a foreign country, passports, money, clothes, and all the rest of it. And here I am complaining about disrupted plans and the lack of a romantic dinner in a nice place with my wife and upset that I'm sweating. And by the way, the guy, as we discovered later, had actually thrown brown paint all over my clothes. And even though my clothes have been ruined, recognition says this could have been so much worse. I'm complaining about a relatively small thing, and if you please, God just saved us from something that could have been a pretty large thing. And it's a long story, but a pretty good story, right? To get to a very simple point, which is to say we must constantly come to these places in our life where we deliberately recognize what we're going through, where we are able to see the manna and all of our circumstances may not be exactly the way we want, but we're complaining about hardships that when we recognize our circumstance, we realize that we actually have so much to be grateful for. And I think this is part of why Paul said that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't mean that we give thanks for everything. There are things that happen in our lives that we shouldn't be thankful for. It means that we give, thank, we give thanks in everything. Regardless what's happening in our lives, we deliberately focus on, think about whatever good thing we can find. And we discover that this is the will of God. And it's when we get ourselves in that proper mind frame where we are thinking about the good things in our lives that God is able to then say, okay, now, now, what do you want me to help you with? What do you want me to do for you? Uh, now, when we're on our way to the complaints department, God may not be standing there, you know, with the big gift certificate to hand us. But when we, when we get ourselves in a place of gratitude, you get a sense that God is saying, okay, now, now that we've settled this, hey, I have a land flowing with milk and honey, and I want us now to talk about next steps to get you where I've destined you to go. So next week, by God's grace, I intend to pick up with the third observation, which is something about grateful people sees future possibilities and ingrates miss out on God's promises. Next week, 
I want to start to focus on how when we're then grateful, we are content, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we are satisfied. We're content, but it doesn't mean we aren't asking for more. God's plan for his children in the wilderness wasn't that they live in the wilderness. It was something they were passing through. God's plan was a land flowing with milk and honey. So somehow or another, we can learn to be content in a present circumstance while at the same time, in a spirit of gratitude, our eyes are opened to possibilities in our lives. So I hope you'll come back and uh, we'll pick this thought up next week. Would you please stand with me? I asked Russ if he would, uh, you know, we're doing okay time-wise, and, and, I, and I thought that I would just ask Russ and the band to do the song they did before I came up today, just do the thing again exactly the way they did it, because I just feel like it was awesome, and it's a great way to end our time today to talk about how that we are living in the overflow of God's blessings in our lives. Hey guys, if you would, please say this. Say, I am blessed. blessed. Say it again, say, I am blessed. Whatever you're going through, and there are people in this room going through very difficult times. All of us go through very difficult times in our lives, but I assure you, my friend, you are blessed. And if you can find a way to be thankful in every circumstance, God has great plans to lead you to the good and beautiful in your life. And then so many of us are just, you know, we're just in places where we just know it. We are just blessed. We complain about leeks, onions, and garlics, but really, if we just pay attention just for a minute, manna showing up every morning, fresh bread from heaven, 